We'd like to thank you for joining the broadcast of Oakley Baptist Church in Orange Park, Florida. Oakley Baptist is all about leading people to God. We do this by learning God's Word, loving God and others, and living out our faith. For more information, visit us online at oakleybaptist.org. Hey, Oakley Baptist Church, excited to be able to spend some time in God's Word with you today. Listen, what an awesome study this book of Esther has been, seeing the providence of God and how He intervenes and how He works. And I tell you, if you're a believer and you've, you're facing difficult times in your life and, and you, in your heart and in your mind, you don't, you ask, where's God at? What is He doing to help or intervene? Listen, you have no clue what God's doing uh, in the background to intervene and to, and, to, and to work in your life. In the book of Esther, we see how God providentially intervenes in Israel's life. We see here in this book that in the study, it has been phenomenal to be able to see how God works and how, how God moves and in ways that you would never expect it to happen. He comes through because He's God. Listen, before we get into the study tonight, I want to encourage you. Listen, get your Bible. Let's, let's uh, pray and then let's dive into God's Word. And I want to encourage you to follow along and be a part of it. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the Word of God that we can study. Thank you for the book of Esther, how it can influence our lives and seeing how God can work in miraculous ways. God, as we meet, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds. Help us not just to look at our study tonight as a purely academic time in God's Word, but to really understand that God's Word is not just an academic exercise. It is power, and it is living, and it is truth, and it can speak into our lives. So God, help us to recognize that. Be with us as we meet. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so folks... Get your copy of God's Word out. Like we do every week, we're going to start with the books of the Bible up to Esther. I'm curious as to how many people that have been watching this video can now recite and, and know from memory those books who may have struggled with it before. So let's start and let's do it together. You ready? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So the book of Esther, we're going to go to chapter 9, and we're going to start out tonight in verse 20. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to, to get it out, find Esther chapter 9, verse 20. And while you're doing that, I'll kind of catch you up on what we finished up with last week. So last week we saw that the Jews had received the, the, the notification from Mordecai and Esther regarding the law that was now put in place to, def, to, to permit them to defend themselves and to actually to take care of their enemies on the 13th on the 14th and 15th day of Adar. So we see here that on the 13th, 14th and 15th day of Adar, it becomes significant in the lives of the Jewish nation. Now, Adar is about the time of March or April in our calendar. So we see here that he sends his letter out and the last study that we had shows that that day, the Jews defended themselves, the 14th and 15th day, they defended themselves, and actually, according to the Scriptures, over 75,000 enemies of the Jews were slain on that day. They were, they, were, they were killed, and the Jews did not touch any of their property, those who they killed, 
They didn't touch any of the spoils. They, they left them because it wasn't about the Jews getting rich off of killing these people. It was about the Jews being able to protect themselves and defend themselves against their enemies who were out to hurt and destroy them. So we see here, that's where we finished our last lesson at. And tonight, we're going to jump into verse 20 here in Esther chapter 9. The Bible says here, And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, both nigh and far. Now we see here, in the beginning of this verse, we see the Bible says, And Mordecai wrote these things. Now, there are some people that would believe that from this statement, it is leading us to believe that Mordecai wrote the book of Esther up to this point. He wrote all these things, and, um, and, and it's established as a story. Now, if you look in your study Bible, like my study Bible, uh, I have a Ryrie Expanded Edition study Bible that I love. I, I have, this is like the third one that I've owned, and, uh, I, and it is just a phenomenal resource. Um, if you go and look at the authorship notes for the book of Esther in my study Bible, it says that the author is unknown. However, that when you research some of the Jewish historical archives, uh, you look at the Madrid, you look at, at um, some of the, 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 the uh, Targums and so forth, you would, be, uh, you would be informed that there's a strong possibility or strong belief that Mordecai was the author of the book of Esther. We see here that um, in the end of the... You say, well, Bill, why are you talking about that? Because at the end of the book, we see a little bit of a change in a literary style or, or a, a writing here that, uh, that would lead us to believe that someone else may have written the last part of the book, which some attribute to Ezra, and some attribute to maybe uh, one of the men or priests there that worked in the synagogue. Now, here's another interesting fact, and it's going to come out a little bit later uh, tonight in the study. Um, it's interesting that through this whole study of Esther, we're in chapter 9, and we see no mention of high priests or, or uh, the Ark of the Covenant or any of the Jewish worship uh, outside of the fasting that took place. We don't see God mentioned uh, uh, pointedly in the book of Esther. Uh, we, we see so many interesting things here, but we know that God was at work in this book. So we know synagogues existed and, and so forth in the Persian kingdom as they were permit, permitted to be able to uh, enact their religion and, and worship there. So we see here that uh, in the Jewish calendar, the month Adar, which is our March or April, is when these days took place. Now I want you to now have your mind set on that. And we see here that, that, uh, that the, the book itself has is, is been written most likely by Mordecai. And we see that these letters that he is now sending out to all the Jews has also, have also been penned by him. Let's go to verse 21. To establish, this, it says that they sent this out both far and nigh, to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly. Now what he does here is he sends out a recommendation to all the Jews and, and all the promises that they should make a commemorative day, a celebration, uh, out of the 14th and 15th day of Adar to celebrate and remember. See, he knew that ordinary people, just like you and me, uh, we sometimes forget stuff. Um, I don't know about you, but I know in my life, 
um, uh, I have to uh, keep a, a pen and paper on my desk and I have to write myself notes of things that need to be done and things that I need to remember to take care of. On my phone, I'm all, I'm, I make calendar dates and, and to-do lists and so forth to make sure that I'm staying on top of all my responsibilities, both at church and at home and everything that goes on in my life. So I can imagine that even in this day, uh, Mordecai had a concern that the Jews would lose sight of what God did for them and they would forget about God's providence and, and how he took care of them and saved them from annihilation here in the Persian kingdom. So we see here that uh, in the process of studying this out, you can look at some notes here. Um, the 14th day of Adar in Jewish culture is known as the day of Mordecai. And if you continue to study, you'll find out that the 13th day of the month is known as Mordecai's day. And if you, if you look into this, you'll find out that they specifically have these names set aside uh, to, to remember Mordecai and the influence he had to this story and to this, this event where God interceded in the Jewish nation's existence. So let's look here. Uh, in Esther chapter 9, verse 22, the Bible says, And as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. So we see here, they did not keep the days on which they fought, but the days on which they rested. They celebrated on those days, that they were able to uh, overcome this incredible, incredible circumstance of the enemies being given permission to kill them. Now they were able to celebrate and commemorate their ability to, to, to overcome those enemies and then the rest, the peace that was provided after that took place. Now as the Targum would point to uh, historical documents here, we see in this verse that it says that they sent gifts uh, to one another, sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. I want to look at that real quick. Interesting, interesting study. So what they see here, what they did here was they, according to the Targum, they would buy food and drink and share it. And then there were also gifts that were given to the poor so that they could participate also in this celebration. Now, uh, a man that would give these gifts, it, it was kind of a Jewish thing that they would, uh, they were kind of required to give no less than two gifts uh, in this time of year for this celebration. And as they gave these gifts to the poor, these monies that were given were called the monies of Purim. And the poor could not just spend them on anything they wanted. The poor would spend these, these monies or these gifts. They would utilize them specifically to celebrate the feast or the days of Purim that we see that Mordecai is declaring here and setting up. So in verse 23, the Bible says, And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun and as Mordecai had written unto them. So we see here they had already kept the 15th day. And some of them now in the country... Uh, would keep the 14th day also in this moment of peace and a day of rejoicing. So now, what Mordecai is seeking to do here in verse 23, he says that the Jews undertook to do so as they had begun. 
And as Mordecai had written unto them, they already began to celebrate on the 14th and 15th days, these days of peace. And now uh, this letter comes from Mordecai and Esther declaring this. Now, what he does here is he wants to bind this celebration, not just to these Jews that lived in this day and age, but to their successors, those proselytes that had joined them. For a perpetual celebration that would take place every year, he begins to suggest. Now, understand that um, the Jews had been dispersed all over the Persian kingdom. So this wasn't localized to any one place or area. It was all over that Mordecai sent this letter and was encouraging them to celebrate these days of peace and joy and rejoicing from God's deliverance on the 14th and 15th day. Let's look at verse 24. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. Now, we studied this before, but just a quick reminder. When we see this term in this verse, uh, the, the, that he cast pure, the name, the Persian word for pure is lot or pure. So we see here that it falls into the Feast of Purim. The Feast of the Lot is what we see Haman or, or Mordecai is setting up here. Another thing I want to point out in verse 24 is notice the, the everlasting um, adjectives that describe Haman. Haman, the one who was out to kill the Jews. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, speaks to his, his heritage, the Agagite. Again, being connected to King Agag, uh, and we've, we've reviewed that story about Saul and his, his command from God to kill the uh, King Agag and the Agagites, and he did not do that. We see here, again, the enemy of the Jews. Uh, they want to make very clear that, that Haman is not the friend. He is the villain in this story. We see here, Haman was led by that lot that he cast for the particular day that he had, was going to write the legislation for the enemies of the Jews to be able to destroy them, and he would triumph. And he determined what day he would triumph by casting those lots, now, you say, why do you keep emphasizing this? Because there's a significance to it. The significance is that God intervened even in the casting of the lots for what was going to take place. Verse 24, Because Haman, the son of Amadath, the enemy of the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them. He cast pur, and he cast pur. He cast the lot to figure out when the, we, the gods would smile upon him and help him to be successful. Little did he know that God Almighty, Elohim, had intervened and it was his dates that were chosen and his dates that were set historically at that time for the event. Now, we see here in verse 25, And when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that his wicked device, that is, the device of the pole that he would be hung on, and that he had originally built to hang Mordecai on, and also the device of this letter of the law would be used against Haman and what he had done. 
So he said, which he devised against the Jews should return upon his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Now, Haman was hanged on the 23rd day of the month, according to the historical documents that we can find. And on the second day of the Passover feast that was being held that particular year. Do you see the significance of this? Listen, the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of mankind, we celebrate the Passover in, in a time where the death of the firstborn took place in, in Egypt as Israel was there in captivity. So the significance of, yet again, the, the Israelites being in captivity here in, in uh, Persia, and now the, their enemy is, is defeated and overcome on the second day of this Passover celebration is significant to the Bible student. His plan to hang Mordecai right after the reciting the Shema on that day was significant when Haman determined to go meet with King Ahasuerus to get permission to kill Mordecai. I want you, I mean, I keep coming back in my mind. Haman on cloud nine thinking everything's going to fall in place for him, getting up that morning to go meet with the king to ask permission to hang Mordecai, to put him on that gallows and to let him be impaled. He's thinking in his mind when you study historical documents and you look at the the the, the Targum, they, they say that Haman's plan was that when Mordecai completed that morning his recitation of the Shema, that Haman would be right there to snatch him up and put him on that, that gallows to be impaled. But we see here in verse 25, listen, the device that Haman had created to kill his enemy was used on himself. We see here that in this plan, not only did Haman end up dying on those gallows, but to review the story, his ten sons were also hung on the same gallows as a representation of the retribution that the Jews carried out against their enemies and how God had provided. Let's look at verse 26. Wherefore, they called these days Purim after the name of Pur, or the Lot. Therefore, for all the words of this letter and all that they had seen concerning the matter and which had come unto them. So Haman cast lots to the month and days that they ought to, they ought to, that he would have victory over the Jews. And here those lots ended up being turned against him and his own defeat, his own defeat with his enemies and all who followed him came at the hands of his own casting of the lots. We see here, if we continue to study, the Bible says that the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year. So all the Gentile proselytes and all of these people who align themselves with the Jews through this process, now they enjoy the benefits of the deliverance of God and what God had done. And in doing so, we see in verse 27 that the Jews were ordaining these days, the 14th and 15th, to be days of celebration to their seed and not just their nation, but all the proselytes that came and, and became part of them in their Jewish faith.
Verse 28 says this, And these days, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, and every province, and every city. And these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. The idea here is that they, they, they were given this from Mordecai as a suggestion, and now they are embracing it as a part of their culture that yearly they would embrace this feast to remember God's providence and how God took care of them. We see here, if you look in Esther, uh, the first letters here, Esther 9.20, was to some extent as these letters were delivered, we, we talked about this, they were more of a recommendation initially. But now we see that the Jews embrace them as Esther writes, and look, look in verse 29, then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, uh, and Mordecai the Jew wrote with all authority to confirm the second letter of Purim. So this second letter that was sent, they wrote with authority, the two of them, and it was the second letter that now put a mandatory uh, um, expectation on the Jews and any proselytes, those Gentiles that joined them. It, it put mandatory on them the yearly celebration of these 14th and 15th day of Adar to celebrate God's deliverance. And again, what Haman thought was a tool for his evil and those lots being cast ended up being his own destruction. And I think it's ironic. I think it's comical that they call it the Feast of Lots because the lot that was cast against them ended up being the lot that preserved their nation. We see here in verse 30, the Bible says, And he sent the letters unto all the Jews into the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, and the words of peace and truth. Now, I think it's interesting when you study this out, one of the commentators brings to light that Judea was one of those provinces that the Jews were living in, that these tidings, these mandatory uh, declarations were being sent to in these 127 provinces. I think it's interesting the words that's used here in verse 30. At the end of the verse, it says, with words of peace and truth. Peace and truth. Now, I want you to consider all that the Jews have been through over the past year or so regarding their, the death threats, what's taking place with Mordecai, um, uh, the new decrees that were given for them to be able to defend themselves, the uncertainty, the anxiety, all that took place, the fear in, in going into the 14th and 15th days of these months. I want you to look at the fact that it's declared to them that they do this with peace and truth. What's the significance of the words peace and truth in this verse? I would like to submit to you that the peace here is the peace of the friendship and kindness of brotherhood. That now all the enemies were gone and they can be at rest and peace as if there's a familial environment of safety. The other thing we see here is that he uses the term here, truth truth. Now, in our society in this day and age, truth is a funny thing because there's, there's absolute truth and we see the scripture is absolute truth. We see fact is actual truth. But then we have people who believe in an abstract truth. That is, 
that is able to be manipulated or interpreted. And, and to them, truth is what they make it to be rather than truth being in fact speaking for itself what it is. Now listen, this truth that we see here that he speaks of here is the truth of living the life of belief in, in a Elohim and in Messiah to be that of one in sincerity. So the idea here is that they would have a true religious experience, a sincere relationship, a sincere view of who God is, and that they would enact and interact with God in that sincerity now that they had peace and there was, there was rest around them. We see here in verse 31, and we have to we have to hurry here, to confirm these days of Purim and their times appointed according to Mordecai, the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them as they had to decree for themselves and for their seed the matters of fasting uh, and their cry. I want you to, to consider this. At the end of the verse here, we see that there's a, there's a, a direction, uh, words that are used here, the matter of fasting and their cry. Now, if you go look in Zechariah 7.5, you will find, uh, uh, and you study that out, you will find that there's a desolation of Jerusalem that as, as they fast and they, 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 they end up uh, rejoicing after the recovery of it. So you go from the destruction of Jerusalem and the fasting and the annihilation that takes place to the feasting and celebration of what God does. They're two totally opposite ends of the spectrum. At the end of verse 31, we see this is brought out about the fasting and their cry. What's the significance of that? The significance is at one moment they're fasting and praying and begging God to intercede. The next moment they're feasting and praising and celebrating God's uh, intervention into their lives and the answer to their prayer. We see here that the... the um, this verse here vows that they utter the cries and, and the fasting aspect to what they celebrate and then embrace the feasting aspect of what they're celebrating. So if God would hear and help them in their fasting, they can celebrate how God would not fail to meet their needs and rescue them at, at the time that he sees best. We see in all of this, there's no mention here of receiving any type of, of um, direction or authority from any type of priest involved in Jewish culture at this time, which I think is interesting. In verse 31, it says, to confirm these days of Purim and the times appointed according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them. It was on the authority of Mordecai and Esther that these days were established. It was not established by the synagogue or the priest or the high priest or anybody within the Levitical system. It was purely Mordecai and Esther that enacted this feast and, and put it on the people of Israel, the Jews, to make this a part of their culture and life. Now we see in verse 32, and the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. The Targum says 
that the words of Esther, all these things relative to Purim that we see here, were confirmed. And then the role was transcribed into the book of the kings of the Chronicles. Now, this may have been transcribed into the book that, uh, that Ahasuerus would keep in his, in, his, uh, in his courtroom where he had his scribes there recording history and major facts down. But I would like to petition you to, to look at the fact that when we see that this was written, it was written not just from a historical perspective in the King's books, but it was written in a biblical perspective. And now we have it in our canon of Scripture, and the Jews have it in their synagogue to rehearse and to celebrate and to, to go back and to remember that fasting and then the feasting and celebration that they lived and went through in their lives, as we see reflected in the book of Esther. Now we see here that it says, and the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Um, some commentators, some historical documents would, would strongly recommend or suggest that when it refers to the book, it is specifically referring to a, a, uh, a Jewish historical writing that was preserved for posterity of the Jews to remember the events that took place and what happened and that they would utilize it for their worship of God. So we see here the book of Esther as, as we're coming to a close. We have one more lesson in the book of Esther, which we'll have next week. And uh, listen, what a phenomenal book. What, what a great preservation of God's word to allow us to see how the people of God through prayer and fasting were able to see God intervene on their behalf. And then they were not forgetful to celebrate. And they even to this year continue to celebrate the Feast of Purim, the celebration of Purim in what they do as a nation that they remember how God preserved them. I have a question for you. So in your life, do you remember the day when you were fasting and praying or you were begging God? You were, you were crying out to God to save your soul? Maybe you remember those days when, when the day when you got saved and then as time went on, you grew as a believer and there were difficult and hard times in your life where you fasted and prayed for God to intervene in your life and you saw God deliver and come through. Listen, believer, I want to encourage you, don't forget to celebrate what God has done in your life. Don't take it for granted. Don't, don't, uh, don't, let it pass by without an opportunity to remember what God's done. Mordecai and Esther wanted to make sure the Jews never forgot what God did here. And I would implore, I would beg you to take time to sit down and count the blessings of God in your life and how He intervened and how He worked, how He supplies. And take time to praise Him and worship Him and give Him glory and honor and recognition for who He is and what He's done and how He has supplied. And watch God continued to work in your life. Yes, there's times of feasting and famine and heartache and trouble. But I'm telling you that the God that we serve is not the God that leaves us in that time of trouble. He is a God that delivers. 
He delivers us from our sin and he'll deliver us from this place of earth that is so rampant with sin one day. And until that day comes, we need to always be mindful of God and how he provides, how he works and how he intervenes even in our lives as he did with the Jews in the book of Esther. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for salvation and the assurance that we can have that we will not spend an eternity in hell, but through repentance of our sin and accepting Jesus Christ into our lives and having faith that he's the son of God. And when he went to the cross, he paid for our sin and and that, that through trusting him, we can be reconciled to you. God, I pray, I beg God that we would never lose the celebration and worship of our salvation. God, help us to never forget the intervention we see in Scripture, even here in the book of Esther and how you worked your will and your way. And Father, help us to never forget our own personal experiences where you intervene, where you work and you supply. Now, God, I pray that you take us our way today. I pray that you'll help us to take what we've learned and share it with others. Help us to lead people to God. And all God's people said, Amen. Listen, thanks for joining us. Have a great week. We'd like to thank you for joining the broadcast of Oakleaf Baptist Church in Orange Park, Florida. Oakleaf Baptist is all about leading people to God. We do this by learning God's Word, loving God and others, and living out our faith. For more information, visit us online at oakleafbaptist.org.